If you've got a Bible, would you like to turn to the book of uh, Luke? Luke's Gospel and the third chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow in one, then just raise a hand and one will be brought right to you. So we're going to start in Luke 3, and we're going to read from verse 1, and pick up the story there. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming up to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. And then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. There's a question that's on my mind as I've been looking through this, uh, this passage in the last little while. In what sense is repentance... Good news. Or why is repentance good news? Why is it for John to invite people here in this passage to repent? Why is that good? It says right at the end there in verse 18, and with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. That's how John is recording, uh, rather Luke is recording this occurrence, recording this event. He's recording it as a message of good news. But it began, it began with, uh, 
preaching a baptism of repentance. It sounds like, or it could sound like, a contradiction in terms, really, like going to work one morning and to be told by your line manager, good news, we missed our performance targets again. Pay cuts all round and redundancies next month. It kind of seems to fall a bit flat. Sounds like a contradiction in terms. Or if you're going into school and the teacher arrives and maybe says to just you or says to the whole class, good news, your behaviour has been so bad, the standard of work so poor, uh, it's detention for you. But good news. Is that re- good news, repentance? It sounds a contradiction. But it is characteristic of a message that's brought throughout the New Testament. We see John here bringing a baptism of repentance. He's telling people to to turn away from sin and turn towards God. Jesus, when he uh, begins his ministry in Matthew 4, he begins by preaching um, this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, they went out, it says in Mark chapter 6, they went out and preached that people should repent. And right at the end of uh, the book of Luke, in Luke 24, verse 45 and onwards, there, uh, Jesus, having uh, resurrected from the grave, is spending time with his disciples. It says there, he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what was written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus' expectation was that this message of repentance wasn't just uh, for a certain time or a certain group of people, but it was something that was going to characterize uh, the spread and growth of his uh, kingdom right across the globe, that his, his apostles, his followers then pick up. We see numerous times in the book of Acts, uh, the apostles inviting people to, to repent. And then even when people have made that response, there are occasions in the New Testament where Uh, communities of believing Christians, of churches like us, are told to repent. They've already turned to Christ, their sins have been forgiven, and yet a a further message comes to them, come and repent. We see that in uh, in the book of Revelations in in particular, where a whole raft of messages are shared with different churches. In Revelations 2, verse 5, the message there is shared to the church in Ephesus, Repent and do the things you did at first. To the church in Pergamum, in chapter 2, verse 16, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the word of my mouth. And in uh, Revelation 3, verse 3, the church in Sardis gets this message. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. In a sense, John seems to kind of get the ball rolling in this message of repentance. But why is repentance good news? And we're going to look at three reasons why repentance is good news. Three reasons why what is happening here, which can sound so harsh, is actually a demonstration of God's grace towards people. The first reason why the call to repent is good news is because something amazing is on offer. Something amazing is on offer, the forgiveness of sins. John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke, in particular, uh, draws attention to a scripture in Isaiah to to kind of bring clarity and understanding on on what is happening here. 
so it begins, uh, a voice of one calling in the desert. It goes on, every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill be made low. It concludes with this, and all mankind will see God's salvation. There's something on offer here that's on offer to all mankind. That's something that Luke in particular is very keen uh, to stress. It's not uh, a gift that is only available to a certain special few, but to all. Luke is writing possibly to um, a Roman uh, official of some sort, a a man called um, Philosophus. Hopefully I've got that right. Um, (laughs) I think it was someone else pronounced. Um, (laughs) Uh, Writing to a guy who was originally outside of God's people, not a Jew, but he's saying to him and to others like him, all around the globe in fact, that this salvation is for all mankind. So there's a there's an offer that's going out to all. This message was perhaps more easily received by those who didn't really need any persuasion that there was, in fact, a problem. So if you were in a hotel, peacefully sleeping, and someone bangs on the door late at night, you could immediately think, what, that's not good news. But if somebody's banging on the door to say, there's a fire that is devouring this entire hotel, but there is an escape route, come with me, this is the way to go to safety, then it is in fact good news. It comes as a shock, it comes as maybe an offence that you've just been woken up, but actually it's good news. There's good news that there is uh, an escape. There's good news that, um, that God wants to, to do us good, but it begins with this call uh, to repent. There were perhaps people who were... Uh, very willing and very open to receiving uh, this message because they knew something wasn't right. And John mentions, or John encountered um, a few groups of people. He mentions a few of them. He mentions tax collectors. Tax collectors were people who were basically collaborating with an enemy force. People who were um, collaborating with the Romans. The Romans wanted to raise taxes for themselves and so... Uh, they basically put that out to tender and s- so that people at the high- could place the highest bid in order to become those who collected the tax. And so they would go from house to house, from town to house, uh, raising taxes uh, for Rome, but keeping back some for themselves. So they became hated figures in society, and a vicious cycle could easily develop where they were hated because they were in cahoots with Rome, Because they were hated, they thought, well, we're just going to collect even more money then. And so the temptation was there to collect even more money, line their own pockets, become even more wealthy. The more wealthy they then became, the more hated they became. The more hated they became, the more they thought, well, whatever, let's just uh, raise even more and line our pockets even more. A vicious cycle where they were just uh, uh, hated by others. And it's mentioned as these soldiers as well. Soldiers that may have been Roman or they may have been Jewish. We're not told in particular. But in, they seem perhaps to be linked to the collect, uh, tax collectors. And they too were perhaps abusing a position of power. Uh, blackmailing people by making false accusations. Making money by the threat of violence. Now both those groups, both those specific groups and others as well, were feeling drawn to this message that John was preaching. Uh, we know that John was actually preaching this message in, in a desert, and so people were going out to, 
uh, to hear him and to get baptized and turn away from their previous lifestyle. Interestingly, John asks, well, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? In verse 7, who warned you? John isn't kind of trying to round people up. John is preaching a message. People are hearing about it and people are feeling drawn to go to him. So the only clear and obvious answer to that question is actually God was drawing them. God had already begun a work in their lives, but once what seemed attractive to them was becoming more and more uncomfortable. Their lifestyle was not resting easily. It was the same for the prodigal son, a guy who decides one day to ask his father for inheritance before his father dies, and then he just goes off, and it kind of squanders all that money. There comes a point, however, his lifestyle is just starting to eat away at him, and he's, there comes a point when he, when he comes to his senses, and it's like that. There's something just working on his conscience, bringing, bringing him through to a point where he's just not comfortable. He knows he has squandered his father's money. He's not comfortable with what he's done. And so God starts to work in him. He reaches a point where he comes to his senses. He says, what am I doing? I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say to my father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Will you take me back? But there's that point where he knows, actually, there's a problem. He doesn't need any persuasion of the mess he's got himself into. And so this message of repentance to him and to others, these tax collectors and soldiers, comes as good news. The message, however, was not so easy to receive for those who already thought their position was safe. Those who perhaps disbelieved that there was any problem. The hotel's not on fire. You've just woken me up. I'm irritated and there's no need for me to hear this message. John's message was heard mainly by fellow Jews. In other words, people who already regarded themselves as belonging to God. People who already regarded themselves as being part of his covenant people. They might expect other people to have this message of repentance preached to them, but it would come as a huge shock and offence that they should be on the receiving end of it because they regarded themselves as fine. They might have been saying, well, we've got Abraham as our father. God made promises to Abraham that he would establish an everlasting covenant with Abraham and all his descendants. We are descended from Abraham. Surely we're already in the right camp. So this message came to them as very hard-hitting. It would have come even more hard-hitting because it was accompanied by a message of baptism, i.e. the call was accompanied by the call to get baptised. And to know why that was ever so hard-hitting, you've got to know that baptism was what non-Jewish people would have had to go through in order to uh, become a Jew, in order to become part of Israel. So in fact, the Jews were being told, your Jewishness, the fact that your parents are Jews, the fact that you can trace back your family tree right back to Abraham, is actually no guarantee that you belong to God. It's true that God made all those promises, and yet God can raise up children out of stones. God can raise up descendants of Abraham out of stones. And so it came as a shock. As I was reflecting on that 
this week, I was caused to think about how God began to work in my own life. As a young uh, lad, I was about 10 years old. Obviously, not Jewish, but for me, I could reckon myself to be just right with God. It never crossed my mind as a young person growing up in church, um, going along to youth groups or whatever, and being part of a Christian family. It never crossed my mind uh, up until a certain point that there was much repenting to do. I was part of God's people, or so I thought. And so it came as a shock when I found out that everything wasn't right. I went to a, a youth camp, and we stayed in dormitories, and so our leaders would, would gather together us in the morning and just take us through some part of the Bible, open it up for discussion, and we'd pray together. And they opened up this question asking, when did you become a Christian? The question just didn't make sense to me whatsoever. So I thought, well, I've always been one. And so people contributed, they went round in turn, and I, so I said, well, I've always been one. And it was another kid that said, no, you haven't. And um, that was the shock to the system that began a work of progress in me, of God starting to reveal, okay, I'm, I'm not right with God. I actually need to come to Christ in repentance. I need to agree with God's verdict on my life. I, I need forgiveness. The fact that um, I've been going to church since I was knee-high doesn't qualify me. The fact that I've been raised in a Christian family, it doesn't qualify me. I need something that only Christ can offer me. And so that began the ball rolling of then finding out, well, what does what the cross of Christ actually mean? In a sense, that's what John's doing here. He's, he's getting the ball rolling. He's starting to share the good news. He doesn't necessarily have the full picture of the good news himself. He doesn't quite know the fine details of how God, how the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was going to bring about his forgiveness of sins by dying on the cross. That's what we see established. That's what we see coming through in the rest of the gospel. But he starts by this call to repent. And so God can sometimes just be working on our consciences, bring us to a point where we're just not all that comfortable. Something doesn't quite fit right. And sometimes that can be just the beginning of a sign that God is at work in people who have not yet come through to know Christ. But it's good news because of what is on offer. This amazing offer of forgiveness of, of sins, being right with God. It's like a treasure in a field. It just looks like an ordinary field, but start digging and find there's a hidden treasure here. There's wonderful treasure. Everything else pales into insignificance because this treasure is on offer. Forgiveness from God and all that that brings. So repentance is good news because of what is on offer, forgiveness of sins. It's also good news because it leads to something. It leads to fruitfulness. God begin, uh, John begins by calling the crowds that came to him uh, a brood of vipers. In other words, kind of not mincing his words at all, he's saying, in effect, you belong to Satan. You're under his control. You're his offspring, as it were. A viper, another word for a snake. Satan, when we first see him in the Bible, is pictured in Genesis as a snake. He's saying, you brood of vipers. So it begins this hard-hitting, crunching message of judgment. But the metaphor changes to that of a tree that can bear fruit. And that helps to clarify 
what repentance actually is. Not just changing our outward behavior, not just trying harder to to turn over a new leaf. Repentance is the decision to turn to God, to agree with him about what is right and wrong, and turn away from what displeases him. There are actions and decisions that follow on from that. There are fruits that result from that. But repentance isn't first and foremost about just thinking, well, I'll just try harder then. I'll just make some changes. I'll just do something different. Repentance is an inner change on the inside, just coming to the point of realizing, no, I, I need God. I, I recognize that what he says is right. So I recognize in myself that I'm just going entirely in the wrong direction and I need him. That's what uh, repentance is. So John brings this understanding of fruitfulness as an instruction, but it hints at something that Jesus develops. In Matthew 12 and verse 33, Jesus says, Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Only a good tree can bear good fruit. And we become good trees not by trying harder to bear good fruit, but by repenting, by accepting God's verdict. By accepting, like the prodigal son, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Or like David, a man after God's own heart in so much, and yet he um, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then tried to ki- and, uh, succeeded in killing uh, Bathsheba's husband in order to try and cover it all up. He comes to a point when he comes to his senses. He says, against you, speaking to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Accepting like that, accepting these things, accepting there's nothing about me which deserves pardon, and going on to accept God's free gift of mercy and his forgiveness is what changes us from a tree that bears bad fruit to a tree that bears good fruit. And again, John is just kind of getting a hint of this. But he understands that there's another one who is coming who is not just going to baptize with water, but is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Not just getting people wet on the outside, but bringing an inner transformation. This is something that the prophet Ezekiel uh, predicts as well. In Ezekiel 36 and verse 27 It speaks there, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's what God is promising he's going to do. A few verses earlier it says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Interestingly that Nathan picks up in the interpretation of a tongue. God changes a heart of stone and makes it a heart of flesh putting his spirit in us to move us to follow his decrees. So it is natural for a good tree to bear good fruit. It's natural for anyone who's come to that point of recognizing the need to repent to then go on to bear good fruit. Genuine repentance leads to a definite change. In other words, it's not a revolving door. God doesn't envisage that we just get stuck on the same issues running around the revolving door and finding no way out. Oh, I've not done very well. Oh, I'll try harder. Oh, I've not done very well. Oh, I'll try harder. And it just spirals on, that vicious cycle that perhaps the, uh, the tax collectors and the soldiers were getting into as well. What's the point in trying? I can't seem to do it. No, God, what God does 
is give us his Holy Spirit, give us his power on the inside, strengthen us on the inside, so that when we accept by his mercy uh, that we need him and ask for him, he comes and helps us to bear good fruit, fruit that pleases him, so that we don't just get stuck in a revolving door. Well, so what is this fruit? Well, John pricks up on a few things, and he notices in particular overriding issue of selfishness or self-centeredness. And so when the crowd speak to him, they uh, say, what should we do then? In other words, they, they had already repented. They were now coming to say, look, we want to uh, ensure that we're bearing good fruit. Uh, John answers, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. When he addresses the, the tax collectors, don't collect any more money than you're required to. Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely, he says to the soldiers. The, the overriding issue seems to be one that self is in the center. And that becomes evident in, in those particular ways. And we often see the same sort of ways cropping up. It's interesting that later on, we're told that John rebuked Herod. What did John rebuke Herod about in particular? Well, he just took his brother's wife. And, um, and often we see in the scripture those kind of things just brought up. Things to do with selfishness, to do with money and possessions, and also to do with relationships. And, uh, and John just wants to bring people's attention to do with that. That It's like self has been in the center. And now, by repentance, it's God is coming into center. Self is moving away. Repentance puts God back at the center. And so fruit comes out of it. Where once that selfishness led to kind of being very possessive, holding on to personal possessions, not being concerned with other people's needs, not being concerned with how others are, then now there's a new fruit of generosity, of faithfulness. Having turned to God, there's fruit that is, uh, that's coming through. So repentance leads to fruitfulness. And thirdly, repentance prepares the way forward. John came to prepare the way. Again, that's the point that Luke is bringing out when he quotes this passage in Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for, uh, prepare the, way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough ways smooth. The picture that Isaiah is using there is one of the preparations that are made for a coming king. So if a king was on his way, then the roads would get improved. They'd get leveled, they'd get reworked, they'd get uh, strengthened. Um, and then maybe a messenger is going ahead, you know, get ready because the king is on the way. That would be the same nowadays. If a, if a monarch, if a king or queen was coming to visit, delegates would go ahead to visit and say, kind of get ready. Get the barricades up. Make sure this road is kind of prepared for, uh, for, the, for the king or queen to, to come down. Let's make sure you're ready for the, for the arrival of a king. That's what John is doing. He's preparing the way ahead for one coming. That John says, I, I'm not unworthy to tie his sandals. There's one coming who's far greater. There's one coming who's got a message that's even more important than the one that John is sharing. John's just saying, look, get ready. Because a king is coming. Get rid of junk. Get things cleared. Get things ready and prepared. 
And in, in that sense, John's message, John's ministry was effective. Obviously, Jesus comes onto the scene. And Luke, again, wants us to, to, to not miss the significance of how people responded to Jesus as a result of their response to John. So we look in, in Luke and chapter 7, verse 29. Luke includes this comment. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. It's like what John was doing was preparing the way. It was preparing people's hearts. It was preparing people's minds. Those who accepted John's message, turned to God in repentance, were ready to hear and receive what God wanted to share through Christ. They then acknowledged that God's way was right. Those who hadn't responded to John's message of a, a repentance of a baptism rejected God's purpose for themselves because their hearts were hard and they hadn't turned to God initially. And so that's what John was wanting to do, to, to turn people's hearts towards God, to turn people's hearts towards Christ. Which clearly involves um, a warning for those of us who do believe. It's easy to think that repentance is what we did when we became a Christian. I'm covered. I'm in. All my sin has been dealt with. In that sense, it's absolutely true that repentance is a a once and for all activity. When we repent and turn to Christ for the first time and turn away from sin and ask for his forgiveness, everything is wiped out. Every sin is forgiven and we come into relationship with God. That is wonderfully true. We're not ever in danger of losing salvation after that point. But it doesn't stop the writer to the Hebrews warning us in Hebrews and chapter 3. Reading from verse 7. So as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The writer of the Hebrews is addressing brothers. He's addressing fellow believers, Christians, people who have repented and turned to Christ. But he's bringing them this message. Make sure that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that is choosing now to turn away from the living God. See to it, as it were, that none of you is hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Sin has a habit of just tricking us into seeing things that aren't actually there, like, like a mirage. We don't, we're not actually getting a clear picture of things. It's not actually uh, an undistorted view of life. Sin comes in and just distorts and, uh, and doesn't bring any clarity at all. So sin is the log in our own eye which means we can't actually see accurately to deal with specks that might be in others. And so here, John is making the way clear so that people are then ready to receive the more that Jesus has. 
the, the message that Jesus has that is about to come through. But it's important that that preparation is made. So what's been leading me to share these three benefits, these three reasons which repentance is good news? Well, it's good news for people who have, at this point in time, uh, not yet turned to Christ, not yet uh, turned to him in repentance. Perhaps like me, as a young lad, just thinking, well, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm in, not realizing, actually, I hadn't yet responded to the message of the gospel. I hadn't yet put my trust in Christ. I hadn't yet understood that the cross meant I needed to repent of my sin and turn to Christ to be forgiven. But it also means this, that it comes out of a prophetic word or picture that we've received recently about God uh, in the here and now preparing us for a further visitation of God. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, a message of repentance is brought there where it says, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. It seems evident that God has times of refreshing that he wants to bring upon us. And things that can get in the way are perhaps sins that just haven't been repented of, stuff that hasn't quite been cleared out of the way. And maybe God is wanting to bring us through to a point where we're feeling uncomfortable about something and then God wants to bring us to a point of allowing it to be cleared out of the way, coming to him afresh and saying, Lord, just soften my heart. And in response to that, that's what's been happening for me, a sense in which God is just wanting to get my attention on things. Bringing things to, to my attention in me where I think, oh, that's ugly. I need to, I need to actually repent of this. I need to get it right. I need to get it clear. It's easy even having become a believer, even having uh, sort of set out pursuing the things of God just to allow the deceitfulness of sin to harden the heart, which brings a sense of selfishness and a sense of self at the center. What matters is, what am I entitled to? How am I feeling? Am I getting what's coming my way? Rather than having God at the center of my life, thinking, God, are you having all that you want from me? Is my life, is my heart demonstrating uh, softness towards you at this point in time? And so God has been working on me. God is wanting to work on us. Now we can hear words and then just think, oh, we'll just move on or we'll just wander around a revolving door. Today is a, a case of just giving an opportunity to respond that we'll do in a minute. So I'd just like to invite uh, the worship band to come up, back up and we'll, uh, we'll respond. Repentance is not something that any one person can just prescribe to another. The fact is, is God probing anything? Is God probing you to turn to him for the very first time? Or is God probing you on a specific issue to say, come on, it's time to get that right. It's time to get that clear. It's time to turn to me again. It's time to kind of clear out the clutter and have a spring clean. And this is good news because of what God has ahead for us. Good news because God is preparing the way. Repentance isn't just a cul-de-sac or a revolving door where we feel bad about ourselves. No, God is wanting to leave things on. But sometimes he'll bring us to a point of, come on, there might be certain things in which you know you need to get right. That's not a case of being prescribed by other people, but is God bringing anything to your attention to repent? Let's look to him. Let's respond in worship. Let's seek to have an open and a soft heart towards him that we're going to then come into more of what God's got, more times of refreshing 
because we've made sure we've got clear of stuff that uh, is otherwise cluttering up uh, the corners of our hearts. But we want to have soft hearts towards God. We want to respond to everything he might be saying towards us. Uh, let's do that. Let's begin in worship.